I'm Adam Wright, and I would like to welcome you to our third installment of The Deeper Podcast, where we are going deeper into some issues to help us grow in holiness and really prepare for life, and most importantly, for what comes after this earthly pilgrimage is through. This is our third installment, and this month, as we're in the month of November, I thought we would look at some of those considerations we need to plan for when our time on this earth is finished. And so I'm happy to be joined today by Michael Weisbrod and Chuck Raymond, two upstanding gentlemen and two gentlemen with a great background in finance. So that's where we're going to start today. This episode is going to cover two things, the, the practical temporal considerations. And then later in the episode, we're going to be joined by Father Stephen Schumacher to talk about the liturgical and spiritual considerations that come with end of life. Michael, Chuck, good morning, and thanks for being here today. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. My pleasure. All right. I'd like to start with this question. Why is it important to prepare financially for my death? Because after all, I'm going to be dead, and um, I probably won't care too much after that point what's going on. Well, you're certainly not flying solo through life. You've got a spouse. You have children. And hopefully by the time you're gone, you maybe even have grandchildren. So you have to start thinking about what happens afterwards. And it's a process that is lifelong, regardless of your age. Uh, my, my wife's grandmother had an expression and she said, I know what it costs me to live. I don't know what it's going to cost me to die. Hmm. And so for her, it was always about planning for the future and doing her charitable giving after a lifetime. And I think if we took that approach that we don't know what the future is going to hold and we have to be generous, but we also have to be conservative at the same time, it's helpful. Now, Chuck, you're a retired financial planner, so this was a large part of what you would sure. do. You would help people plan f for their lives, but then also what happens when that life comes to an end, the obligations that they may have, the debts they may have, or the people they want to take care of mm -hmm. after they've departed. So tell us a little bit about how you've approached this over the years. Yeah, yeah. In a broad planning, there's a lot of aspects to it. Um, and uh, where I like to start, you know, especially with Catholic clients, is to recognize that um, we're stewards, we're caretakers of everything that God's blessed us with, whether it's our spouse, our children, our jobs, the, the money that we've accumulated. And with that, we have responsibilities to take care of them. And God's given us, you know, the grace to do that, the ability to do that. And the perspective that I like to, to share is that we're called to be stewards of providence. And what I mean by that is to recognize, again, that all of these things are a gift from God. So the money we've earned, the things we've accumulated um, are not really ours. You know, before the, the podcast, uh, you know, Michael, you had a, that analogy you know, about a library book. And maybe you can speak to that real quickly. Sure. So uh, as I was coming into the office this morning, I was thinking about the fact of stewardship and the fact that when you go to the library and you borrow a book, that is your book for the period of time you have it. And you are the steward of that and you have to take good care of it. And as Chuck said, you don't drop it in the, the water, you don't kick it down the street, you take good care of it and it goes back to the library, back into the collection. Everything we have is really a gift from God and it's on loan to us. And we have to do the best job we can with everything we have. It's like the library book. We've heard that old expression, <laughs> you can't take it with you. Or as one of our listeners so aptly put it one time, uh, you, you've never seen a Brinks truck following the hearse. <laughs> so. With that in mind, having set the stage that it is important to prepare, because there are going to be expenses. There's going to be burial expenses, and there, you might be leaving behind a mortgage. You might be leaving behind some other debts. Uh, you might have 
you know, in, in my case, if I were to die today, there are five kids who are minor children who have tuition payments that they will need to pay for the next several years, including high school, which here in St. Louis, Catholic high school tuition is no small number. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of the things that I, I think of immediately. But what are some of the financial considerations that maybe we don't think about in advance? And, and what are the ones, if we were going to make a list, what are the heavy hitters? What are the things we want to make sure we're preparing for? Yeah, from a, a planning point of view, um, you know, we grow up, we get educated, we get a job, and we start we start living. We may be married, and you know, as you mentioned, with your family, be blessed with children, and uh, so we have the responsibility to care for them. And often, we're kind of in the grind of the day to day. You know, getting the doing a good job, paying the bills, and um, it, it's while that's you know critical, it's important to think about. Um, what if? What if there's an accident? What if um, I'm injured? Uh, what if I die prematurely before the whole plan gets through? Um, what do I do for the the charitable organizations, my church, other organizations that I care about that I may be contributing to on a, on a weekly or annual basis? What happens to those if I die? Um, and so. Uh, yeah, we, we do begin with the end in mind. You you want to look at those fundamentals and make a plan, certainly. Um, you know, a plan with the money. You look at how you're living, what you're doing, and uh, really prepare as part of that, you know, what are the, the, the stop gaps? What are the, you know, the, the things that could bail you out of a major financial emergency? Uh, again, we have, you know, insurance is, is a, a fundamental starting point. Um, we, we naturally have auto insurance. You have homeowner's insurance. Um, but do you have liability insurance in case somebody gets injured on your property or in your vehicle? Life insurance, you know, to replace a loss of income. You know, and that's a, a catastrophic event that you... I need to to think about. And of all the things you listed in in that, you know, auto insurance and auto accidents, we don't know if we will ever be in an auto accident, but we do know that one day we will die. Right. Now, uh, Chuck, you touched on something. I'd like to go perhaps flip this around and look at it a different way. You're naming several things, and and, and I've named some things like tuition payments, but you mentioned donation, Mm -hmm. your weekly tithe to your church. Mm Mm-hmm. It's almost as if the question would be, all right, what are what are the expenditures I have now? And which of these would it be problematic if they stopped suddenly? You know, if I'm living by myself, my grocery bill, no one's going to need to worry about how to take care of my grocery bill if I leave this earth. But that tithe to the church or perhaps that tithe to whatever it may be, uh, you could almost ask that question. If I stopped paying this suddenly— would it negatively impact others? Is that a good way to look at it? It's a very good way to look at that. And that's one of the things that you know we look at when we talk with our with potential donors. What do they want to accomplish? Um, you mentioned the parish. A lot of um, folks that we talk to have deep, deep roots in the Catholic Church in St. Louis, and they support a lot of organizations. And you know, I remind them that if they pass away and they don't make some sort of a provision to continue that process, there's a hole. And, you know, if you give your church $1,000 a year and you'd pass away, they lose 1000 Five parishioners pass away, that's 5000 Over a period of time, that's huge. So there are a lot of things that people can do while they're alive to plan for the future um, through their estate plan and other mechanisms that will ensure those gifts continue. 
Now, before we go further into this conversation, I would like to ask this question. We, we might have some listeners listening that are saying, this is all well and good, maybe for my parents or my grandparents, but I'm in my early 20s. You know, do I really need to start thinking about this now? The answer is yes, you do. Um, we never know when God's going to call us home. And, you know, sadly, we all know people that died in their early 20s, late 20s, early 30s, and most of them probably have done no estate planning. I would recommend, and, and Chuck, you probably have some ideas too, e- even for a young person, they should have a minimum of a will and durable powers of attorney for financial and healthcare services, because if you're in an accident and you can't take care of things for yourself, you don't want to become a ward of the state. You want to make sure that people have the ability to make choices for you. And by doing at least a simple estate planning, you're starting to get your feet wet and you can update that every few years as your lifestyle changes. So that's a good starting point then is perhaps to seek out an attorney Mm -hmm. and say, I need to make a plan just in case something happens to me. And then with every major life event, if you're single and you get married, it's a good time to update that plan. If you're married and you welcome a child into this world, it's a good time to update that plan. I would imagine then as well, uh, at some point, we are going to face the prospect of being empty nesters. We, we hope that our children will grow up, live a good life, leave the house, go to whatever God's calling them to, whether it's marriage or the priesthood, religious life, whatever that may be, but they would go and do that. And that's probably another good time to update the plan. Absolutely. And, and most legal professionals will tell you, you really need to review your plan every three, no longer than five years, because lifestyles do change and you forget what's in them. And I can't tell you how often, Chuck, I'm sure you're the same, that when, you talk to, when we're talking to our donors and we're talking to our clients, they can tell you what's in their document because it's been so long since they looked at them. So we advocate that they they do go back and review periodically. That's something we were considering the other day, and our attorney sent us some paperwork to update. And luckily, the attorney knew all of the questions to ask because I was thinking about this. If if I were to die suddenly, would my wife know who to contact about the life insurance policy? Mm-hmm. Would she know who to contact at the bank should she need to make any changes to our bank accounts and so on and so forth? And to have one place where all of that information is kept in, in a just-in-case file uh, is a very helpful thing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I think of something else, though, if we want to give some motivation to perhaps the younger listeners. When I was in my early 20s, I was in between jobs. A friend of mine owned an insurance brokerage and said, I need some people temporarily to just enter data into the computers as we convert from paper into digital. And one day, all of the life insurance agents sat me down in the break room and said, Adam, you're 22 years old. We don't care if you buy the policy from us. We don't care if you get the policy elsewhere. But if you do not get a life insurance policy now, you are a fool. You will never find a premium this low ever again in your life. And so I did. And uh, my wife, who is much healthier than I, she waited a few years after that. We didn't know each other then. And I was shocked because I am probably the higher liability of the two, but she has the higher premium because she waited. And that's that's another great motivation. Start as soon as you can. Yeah. And, and again, to those single younger listeners that might be thinking, you know, that I don't have dependents. I don't have people depending on me financially. Um, 
you know, debt is a, a real problem, you know, in the country right now. I was hearing on the radio that in, in the, the credit card companies uh, are, are getting ready to raise, you know, credit card rates again uh, into the 18 to 20 to 20s, even up to 30 percent for. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, just you don't want to leave that debt. You know, the debt doesn't belong to somebody else. But if you're a young married person and you have a lot of debts and you haven't you know, figured out how you're going to do that, um, if you're single, um, if you don't have some assets, then how is your family going to bury you? I mean, just you don't want to be a burden to someone else, whether, you know, whether you're alive and get disabled or if you die young. You know, so it is important, you know, to you know, have that that provision, you know, that your loved ones, whether it's your your the rest of your family, if you're single, uh, can dignify in a dignified way, you'll put you to rest. Um, sure. Now, what if you're an older listener or what if I'm an older listener and I'm saying to myself, you know, I didn't do that when I was younger. I, I have yet to put any of this into motion. Is it too late to begin? It's never too late. No. And whether you're 25, 55 or 75, you have to have a plan. As I said, for the young person, you have to have at least a minimum plan. As we get older, the likelihood that we're going to have to rely on somebody else for something is critical. And so having some sort of mechanism, whether it's a will or a trust, as your primary estate planning tool for your financial assets is important. But then you really need to have the durable powers of attorney, the health care, and the financial, because somebody's got to step in. I spoke with a donor about a year ago, and she said, well, you know, my husband had a heart attack, and we didn't have anything in place. So when they took him to the hospital they had me sign, or they had him sign, um, a power of attorney for medical services. I'm like, yep. And so she says, so we're done. I'm like, nope. As long as you go back to that same hospital, and you don't even know what it says, but that's not your normal hospital. If you think that's going to survive and work for you in another place, it's not. You do you need to get your estate planning done. I had mentioned earlier that our goal is to get our children out of the house at some point. <laughs> and uh, thinking to that, though, there are several listeners who have adult children who perhaps may live at home, they may live outside of the home, but they're still single. And without that durable power of attorney, once they hit the age of 18, mom and dad really can't step in and just say, I'm going to make the decision now if you become incapacitated in some way. So even Mm -hmm. for our our younger listeners or those with children who are over the age of 18, but perhaps not set up on their own. That's a, it's a difficult conversation possibly, but one that's vital. Well, and actually you're right. And, and even at 18, um, when our daughter left for college, we had powers of attorney set up because she was going to be in another state. And if she ended up in the hospital, they weren't going to give us any information. The same thing was true. She went on a, a trip with some folks when she was a little bit younger. So we actually had a power of attorney drafted for the people that she was traveling with so that they had the power to take care of her if something happened while they were on the trip. So I think it's critically important to do that. And I want to jump back real quickly to the insurance question. Um, you're never too young. You're never too old for insurance. And I'll tell you one of the nice things that my in-laws did when our daughter was born is they bought a life insurance policy on her life. It's a significant policy, and to your point of buying it young, I think the premium is less than $200 a year, and it never goes up, but there's a wonderful cash benefit because I don't want to tell you how old she is, but she's older than 18, Um, and it's going to be something that that she's got and her family has for the future. 
I'm making a list in my head, so I, I want to make this list out loud right now. Some of the things that we, you know we all need to be thinking about. So let's start with that basic one, life insurance. You should ask yourself, do I have a life insurance policy and why do I need one? Because that's going to affect how much insurance you buy, whether you're looking at a whole life product, whether you're looking at a term product. I know for our family, that's the big consideration is how much are we going to need perhaps later in life, if we, God willing, live into our 80s or 90s, versus how much would the family need if something were to happen to me tomorrow? So life insurance is the big one. But even before you die, I might become incapacitated. I could get hit by a bus, as they say. Um, I could have a cardiac event, any number of things. Who's going to be able to make those decisions? Or, you know, God forbid my wife and I are in a car accident together and we're both incapacitated. Is there someone that will have that power of attorney then to step in and make some decisions on our own? Something we we haven't mentioned yet, though, that I would put on the list is retirement planning. Because one day I do hope to, as much as I enjoy the work I do, I do hope to retire. I do hope to spend that time maybe traveling with my wife. And that's another thing that we need to think about is, well, how am I going to pay for that? You know, what can I be doing now to get ready for that down the road? And rolling that into this whole Catholic part of this conversation is, oh, when I retire, I'm still going to be going to mass. They're still going to have an offertory collection. Mm -hmm. And am I accounting for the gifts that I'm giving now? Do I want to be able to give those while I'm still in retirement as well? Yep. Yep. That's, That's definitely true. Yeah. And I would throw in a couple of other sub bullets on the insurance is that you know, one of the most challenging, insurance in general is you're buying protection. You're buying a protection against if something bad happens and you can't afford to take care of it or choose to take care of it. So, and then in some cases like auto insurance, there's laws you know that, that set up minimums. But if you told your car, you don't really want to afford to replace that car. So that's what insurance is for. Same thing on homeowners, if you own a home. Um, life insurance we've talked about, but what about disability insurance? Um, that can be really critical um, in the in the unlikely event that you become disabled, but you're still alive, and now you need um, to be taken care of. How is that going to be done uh, physically and financially? So disability, long-term, short-term uh, is part of that picture as well. And I know another policy type out there that we haven't talked about that you remind me of, long-term care. Mm-hmm. If perhaps there's someone, you know, if there's a family history of Alzheimer's, dementia, um, that can become very expensive very quickly and drain all of your assets, which is not something you would like to have happen. Is that a conversation that you need to have as well? And it's going to vary from family to family, but I would say everyone would benefit from at least having that conversation is this something we need to look into? Exactly, exactly. So we, we talked earlier about, you know, just the, the kind of the global recognition that, you know, everything we have is a gift from God. And so we're, we're the stewards of that gift. So it, it sounds monumental to, for somebody listening maybe to think of, well, how am I going to possibly take care of all these things? I'm trying to get the bills paid and get groceries on the table and get, you know, sh- you know clothes and shoes on my kids. Um so the, the the next thing that you really need to do if you want to um, really deal with this responsibly is to look at assessing where you are, you know, just to take up with your spouse or, or uh, yourself, it, where am I? Where am I? What are, what are the expenses that I have? And it's budgeting. I'm going to say a budget. You know, that's a word that most of us know about, but few of us do. And if you're struggling to figure out how do I tithe, you know, to the church, 
uh, or to other charities? How do I put away money for retirement? It, it, the core uh, fundamental is to budget, is to look at what do I have, where is it going, and how do I cover all the things that, that I should be doing? I don't know if either of you gentlemen have used this trick, but especially in the days of the auto deduction that we're in now where you can just set it up and they automatically take the money out to pay the premiums. Uh, We have made that choice that all of those big expenses, the ones that we would be tempted to cut and say, I don't need, you know, I'm not planning on needing this now, but I need money now. So our life insurance premiums, our IRA contributions, all of these things come out on the two days of the month that we get paid. Mm -hmm. So it hits the bank account, it comes out of the bank account, and then we live our budget on what's left yeah. after all of those deductions. Uh, most employers do that with your medical insurance premiums if you have insurance through your place of employment. So you don't even have to worry about writing that check or mm-hmm. setting up that payment. And at first it seemed very daunting, but what we have found is that we've been able to acclimate to that and to plan our monthly budget for groceries and expenditures and even fun diversions with the kids because we are sticking to that policy of everything comes out before we even have a chance sure. to touch it. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I, I would call that paying yourself first before the money just all full, you know, flops into the bank account and then you, you hope that it works out. So you're, you've decided what are those core you know, res- you know, responsibilities and needs, and you fund those first. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a great a great approach. I'd like to focus now our attention on those charitable gifts that we've been talking about here and there, whether that's our weekly tithe or perhaps, you know, we all have gotten those requests. We've all received those requests. Can you contribute to this campaign? Uh, most recently, mine was for my alma mater. The high school chapel's being renovated and restored, and that was going to be a sizable expense, so we were giving to that. We all have those things. And one of the questions we've asked is, if those payments were to suddenly stop, how would that affect my parish or or whatever cause that may be? And Michael, I like how you brought up this question of how much are you giving to your parish a year and what would happen if that suddenly went away? Because very quickly that escalated into the tens of thousands of dollars, which that can be an entire program at a parish, that can be an entire ministry, that can be an entire staff position if that money goes away. Right. So how do we how do we plan for that? Because right now I just think okay, 10% off the top, that's going back to God, mostly to the parish through these other giving avenues. You work with clients on a regular basis to plan for then what happens after they die. So where do you start with your clients? Well, let me go back to something that um when Archbishop Carlson created the foundation. He made a comment that has been echoed again and again and again. And he said, when we think about our charitable giving after our lifetime, first of all, the people that are going to inherit that don't have it now. So it's going to be new and good for them. But he said, consider giving your the church, your favorite charities, as a child. So if you have five children, divide your state six ways. If you have four children, divide it five ways. Are they really going to know the difference between 20 or 25 percent or whatever that variable might be as you add one more child in? I think my daughter would notice if 50 percent of everything went away. Um, <laughs> but, but looking at it from the standpoint of building your charitable intent in, I think is important. One of the things that I always advocate, and Chuck, you probably do as well, um, is that I've, I, I spoke to a lady a couple years ago, and she told me she was worth a million dollars, and she wanted to give $100,000 to the foundation to create an endowment after her lifetime. 
And I, okay, that's fine. And I said, but here's the thing. You don't know what it's going to cost you to die. What happens if you end up in a nursing home and your million ends up 150000 If you've given the foundation $100,000, that's called a pecuniary bequest, we're paid first. Your kids are going to get fifty grand. I don't think that's going to sit well with anybody. So I advocate using a percentage of mm-hmm. an estate exactly. as opposed to a dollar amount. Because if the estate goes up, you get a little more. If it goes down, everybody should still be happy. So you can easily use your estate plan to set that up, whether it's an outright gift to your parish or the school or the ministries that are important to you, or using the foundation to create an endowment fund that can be funded after a lifetime. And one of the things that Chuck and I were talking about yesterday is we're seeing more and more people create a new life insurance policy, gift that to the foundation. We own it. We're the beneficiary. We do all the testamentary documentation with this donor so she or he knows exactly what we're going to do with the money, as do we. And then on an annual basis, when that premium payment comes in, we notify the donor. They send us a check for that dollar amount. The premium gets paid, and they get a charitable deduction. What a great thing is that. But there are many ways to set up um, ways to structure after a lifetime. IRAs are great because now with the current tax regs, the government says that if you inherit an IRA, you have to vacate that full IRA within 10 years. And, you know, I would suggest that a lot of our kids make more money than we do. So if you left that IRA to the kids and left charities in your will or trust, everybody's going to lose because those kids could lose 50, 60% of that value when they take it out. If you leave the charities as the beneficiary of IRAs and other retirement monies and leave the money, your personal money to the kids, there's a step up cost basis and everybody's gonna inherit more money. It's a lot, it's to, a lot. It's a it lot to process right there. Now you said a word I've heard before, endowment. And there's a joke in our family that between my children and two of my nephews and a couple other family members, in the Catholic school that they go to, we have put so many children through that school and my in-laws have contributed so many donations to that school that at a bare minimum, I expect for there to be a light switch plate with their name <laughs> inscribed on it, uh, saying this was funded through the generosity of. But we think of receiving lump sum payments or, or even a structured payout, that we're going to receive this money over a period of time and we say, okay, that's well and good. But there are ways that we can leave a gift that can really keep on giving. I I know at my high school there was an endowment fund at one of the – actually several. At one of the parishes I worked at, there was an endowment fund. One of the nonprofits I'm involved with, there's a very sizable endowment fund where the principal balance keeps growing Mm -hmm. and all that is spent by the organization is the interest that they receive on that principal balance. Is that what we're talking about when we talk about endowment funds and, and how can these be good venues or why is this something we should possibly look into setting up upon our death? So an endowment fund, you're exactly right. An endowment fund is the gift that keeps on giving. The concept is you're starting a fund that's going to last forever. You name the fund, you identify who the benefiting organizations are going to be forever. And then on an annual basis, distributions, once it's funded, distributions are going to be made to those organizations. And if you're creating the fund, you can also say that if XYZ organization is no longer around, then I want this organization to benefit from it. It never terminates and it never goes anywhere other than where the donors want it to go. But it's a great way, I find many times it's a great way 
for people to have their family name remembered. Most of us don't have streets or towns or buildings or anything else named after us, but you could keep the family name alive by creating an endowment fund and naming it in, in honor of your parents or the, the Weiss Road Family Fund or whatever it might be, and it's going to go on forever, and people will always know who you are. That amazes me, though, what you just said, that it could be as little as $25,000, because when I think of endowment funds, I think of the mega donors, those who are writing at least six-figure checks, if not in the half a million to a million dollar range, a million dollars plus. That's what they're leaving behind. And I've said to myself, well, I will probably never have an endowment fund named after me because I won't have enough money to fund an endowment. And here you're telling me that, no, it's something I should look into because I might be able to make a gift upon my death that will leave a lasting contribution to the church and to the good works, perhaps of a a social outreach or a spiritual outreach or going back to our parishes. We really can leave a gift that lasts more than a lifetime. Absolutely. And it becomes part of the budgeting process. We recommend typically, unless it's a scholarship for a school, that it be general purpose so that on an annual basis, the benefiting organization can decide where they want to plug that into their budget and then they can use it as needed. If you start doing area of interest or very specific um, designations on an endowment, there can be times when the parish, the school, the ministry can't use the money because they're not doing that anymore. And now the hands are tied. And then there's some processes that may have to happen. So general purposes always are the best way to go. You've now given us another thing to add to our list. So again, that list, we have to talk about insurance, life insurance. We have to talk about estate planning, durable power of attorney in case of incapacitation or some other medical event. We have to talk about long-term care, disability coverage, What happens when we die? Where do we want our our assets to go? And that means we might, as you said, children, that's an easy one to think of. I'd like to leave something for my children. If If my spouse survives me, I'd like to leave her with something to take care of her until her time on this earth is has concluded. But who else? And so maybe now is a good time to just sit down and make a list. What are the causes that you contribute to? that are important to you. And if you had to pick one to leave a lasting legacy to, or maybe two or three, depending on your abilities and means, what would those be? And do you really want to wait to set that up? Or do you want to start looking into this now? Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Yeah, those are those are the fundamentals. And I want to go back just briefly that a lot of what we were talking about may be intimidating, you know, for people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Michael, you mentioned it is just the, the the idea of getting a will, getting that power of attorney, getting that uh, healthcare power of attorney is intimidating. And the other thing, it, it, it is because you, it, it does the process forces you to think about all these things, which it's easy to avoid in the hustle and bustle of, of the you know of life, but so critically important. And the other aspect uh, that intimidates people is the idea that it costs a whole lot. Um, and uh, you know, we talked about this uh, you know, earlier. Um, it, it is expensive. You know, it, it costs money, depending on what your situation is. Uh, but it can be done very economically. And uh, um, 
if I can steal what you said yesterday, Michael, it was great. If you have a, a, a good car that you're planning on keeping for a while and it has a problem um, with the transmission and you might decide, I'm going to spend $1,000 to get that transmission fixed because it's necessary and then I'll be back on the road again for a long time. Um, this is one of those kinds of expenses you know, that you just need to recognize that I need to allocate money and get that done. And it's certainly one that the longer you wait, the more the cost will go up. Of course. You know, I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So back to that question of, are, is it, I'm young. Is it too early to start? No, it is never too early to start. And on the flip side of that, it is never too late to get started. I love that expression a friend of mine uses. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is right now. Oh, sure. Well, Chuck and Michael, before we wrap up our portion of the podcast today, I want to ask, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important to mention as we prepare, you know, hopefully for something that's far away on the horizon, but as we prepare for what will come to all of us, and that is death? Both Chuck and you, Adam, mentioned that it can be an onerous process. Um, My recommendation is you probably have a financial advisor that's helping you with your assets. So that's probably the bulk of what you have. And then go back and look at your insurance policies, look at maybe IRAs that you have or um, your retirement plan here. All the other places you have money or have an asset. And just put that list together. Just do it kind of casually. When you have some time on a Saturday morning, I know it's hard with five kids, um, but you know, put that list together because you're ultimately going to need that when you talk to the attorney. And the attorney's going to want to know how everything's titled, what the beneficiary designations are, and then you're going to go from there. The other thing that I will mention is that some people think they can do all their estate planning by powers by PODs and TODs, payable on death and transfer on death. That's a really dangerous way to do things. And it's, to Chuck's point, it costs money to do things the right way. That's not doing things the right way, and it can really come back and backfire at every level. So do that planning. Get the attorney to draft a document. Sign it. Because you can do all the planning in the world. If you don't sign it and fund it, you're going to have a problem. Yeah, I've seen that happen, unfortunately. Yeah. They have a document that's pointless because they haven't funded a trust or yep. or titled things properly. Um, I want to just expand on that just very briefly in that if you think about, especially for families or our older listeners, that um, you're thinking about who you want to leave your legacy to, um, you may recognize that there are um, children or relatives that you want to gift money to that have different needs. Yeah, everybody's not equal. So just the the common idea: I have five kids. I'm everybody gets a fifth. You know that that may not be the case. Somebody may have some special needs or a disability, um, or be in different economic places. Um, and so uh, I, I think that it's important. It, it leads even more when there's anything like that. When there's a, a business involved, when maybe some children are involved in the business, some aren't, um, or there's a, a um, um, divorce, you know, in families or the potential for that. Um, all those things have to be considered. Um, and uh, just you know, reiterating what you said, Michael, just uh, allocate, you know, start. I think you mentioned a, a very good point of just starting by making a list you know, of, of what you have. Um, and uh, again, recognizing that it's, it's critical. It's not something that you, you can just let it slide for a while. And the other thing that I would suggest is and Chuck, I know you've run into this, and I've run into this both when I was in the for-profit world and the not-for-profit world. Frequently, moms and dads, parents, don't want to have conversations with their kids mm-hmm. about 
yeah. what they're planning on doing. And you know, I I was familiar with one situation where it was a family of significant means, and all the kids were kind of hanging on the waiting till they were going to inherit a significant amount of money. Well, what mom and dad didn't tell the kids is the bulk of everything was going to charity after their lifetime. That's that's not the conversation you want to have after mom and dad are gone. That's a conversation you want to have while they're alive so that they can ask questions, they can come to understand it. They may not agree, but it's your money, it's not theirs. And I've seen too many younger people living with the anticipation of the when come and the when come was never going to happen. That can be especially critical when retirement planning, when you're thinking you're counting on a big inheritance to uh, fill up the retirement planning hole yes. and, and that doesn't happen because either the money is going to charity or the money gets used to uh, for healthcare expenses in, right. you know, at the end of life. If for no other reason, that conversation is also vital because again, it goes back to that question, who's going to know what to do? You know, even if you have planned all of this out with your attorney, you have an estate plan, do your children know your attorney's name and phone number to call and say, I am so sorry to say that mom just passed away or dad just passed away and they said we should contact you uh luckily i had your name and phone number and then the attorney will know where to go from there but we need to know that information and i i'm so glad you brought that up to have those conversations with your children Uh, chuck raymond michael weisbrod i want to thank you for being with us for this first half of our podcast today we should note that all of these things we've talked about in generalities uh, They vary from person to person and couple to couple. And this is no substitute for financial advice and and should not be construed as financial advice. So the the people on the podcast told me, I have to do this. You need to have your own plan. You need to talk with competent people. Uh, That is not me. (laughs) And and, and no podcast is a substitute for that. But hopefully this will inspire you to go out and find those people, those financial planners, insurance agents, uh, attorneys, uh, and, and, and get that process started if you haven't already. And if you have started it, a good reminder for us to check in, do that review, and make sure everything is up to date. We're going to take a very quick break here on the podcast, and then Father Stephen Schumacher is going to be with us for the second half. Thank you for being with us, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. God bless. A prayer for the holy souls. O Lord Jesus Christ, King of glory, deliver the souls of all the faithful departed from the pains of hell and from the bottomless pit. Deliver them from the lion's mouth, that hell not swallow them up, that they fall not into darkness, but let the holy standard-bearer Michael bring them into the holy light which you promised to Abraham and his seed. Amen. Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, if you are, did you know that Covenant Network offers great programming 24 hours a day on 43 stations in five states, plus streaming online? You can find our schedule, your local station, or listen online at www.ourcatholicradio.org. That's O-U-R catholicradio.org. Visit us today. And now back to this podcast. In the first part of today's podcast, we sat down with Chuck Raymond and Michael Weisbrod to talk about the temporal planning aspects for that reality that faces us all one day. We will die. 
now we'd like to sit down with Father Stephen Schumacher. In fact, we're very happy to have Father Schumacher with us here in the studio to talk about the liturgical, sacramental, spiritual aspect of the fact that one day you and I, well, we're going to die at some point and we are going to be buried. And what happens at that point in time is not insignificant. Uh, There's great significance to it. So, Father, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for your invitation. Now, when we talk about a funeral in the Catholic sense, a funeral is an okay word to use, but really what the church uses is rite of Christian burial. And, And I think in our culture, when we think of funeral, what are we thinking of? Well, we're thinking of either a service at a funeral parlor or we're thinking of a mass specifically for Catholics. We're thinking of that funeral mass at the church. That's the funeral. But it's a little bit more than that. Can you enlighten us to what the rite of Christian burial actually entails? Right. Yeah. The uh, Of course, as you say, that death, the passing from this world is that one reality that faces us all. And the church, of course, takes great care because it's at that moment that we face our judgment. Um, in fact, in a certain sense, all of our life could be said to be a preparation for that moment. And so the church, of course, accompanies her children um, through all of that. That starts with, you know, our preparation in the sacraments um, and especially with the receiving of the sacrament of anointing. Um, Whenever any kind of illness or injury would come up or even just the frailty of old age, um, that is the anointing of the sick. There is a distinction between the anointing and last rites. The last rites are really the prayers that the church brings to her faithful as death becomes imminent. Um, now, of course, sometimes you don't know exactly when death is imminent, but if it starts becoming clear, this is this is getting closer. Call the priest again. Priest comes and prays a, a series, a long series of prayers um, with the family, with the one who is heading out of this world. And if the priest should be there, it still hasn't quite happened to me. I've been close on a couple occasions um, that the priest is present as the person breathes his last. There are actually prayers prescribed for that moment as well. You're probably familiar with the the song, um, Come to Meet Him, Angels of the Lord, that you're familiar with from the funeral mass. That's actually prescribed at that moment as well, which is really beautiful. Bring him to Abraham. Bring him to Christ. Um, so... That passing is marked by the prayer of the church and then is kept what's, you know, a vigil, right? This has become, now that we have, you know, means of preserving bodies over the course of days or even weeks, the urgency is not quite there like it was in times past. But the idea of the church was that the priest would say prayers, the family would get the body ready for burial, and the burial would happen pretty soon after. So this has morphed kind of into our modern understanding or modern use of Um, the wake, right? The evening before the funeral, which might be some days or weeks in the future after, after the, uh, the, the death of the person. Um, So there are prayers to be said there and, and an opportunity to kind of remember the life of the, of the one who's gone and to be together and to comfort each other as we get ready for this final goodbye, looking forward to seeing them again when we all meet again. Um, the next morning is the procession to the church with the funeral mass and then from the church to the burial at the cemetery. And all this, of course, you know, back in, a, in the ancient or medieval church would have just been done all basically in the same place. You'd have your wake in your own house. Uh, you wouldn't transport this body to some other house. You'd just set it up in the living room. And then the next day you'd bring it to the church and have the funeral mass. And then you'd walk outside to the churchyard and bury the body right there. Obviously in our modern big cities, that's often not possible to do it quite like that. But the idea in the, in the liturgy itself of those three parts of the wake, the funeral mass, and then the burial um, is still, is still present there. As you say that, I, I can't help but think of 
the sacred Paschal Triduum. You know, th- that while it, it, in many ways it seems we're having three distinct liturgies, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, the service of the, His Passion on Good Friday, and then the Easter Vigil, um, sure, spread over three days, but inextricably linked as if we're going from one, hitting pause, and then going right into the next, hitting pause, and then concluding with the Easter Vigil. Is that a decent analogy for what we're talking about here? I think so. I think that's true. Um, you know, we, as you say, hit pause uh, mostly for the needs of the human body. Um, you know, we need to sleep in between and we need to go eat something because we can't do this for 72 hours straight. But surely the spiritual sense of it is continuous. And I think that is very much reflected in the kind of psyche of those who are mourning the loss of a loved one. Sure, you know, we're going to go home from the funeral parlor, but we're not going to stop thinking about this one whom we love overnight. When we wake up, we're still going to be thinking about them and praying for them and, and loving them. So, yeah, I think I think that analogy is very apt. At some point in time, back when I was a parish music director, I, I think it was when I realized I was at a parish where we were going to have a significant number of funerals, just for, for no other reason than the average age of parishioners in the parish. And I thought, you know— Rather than just say, what are some good songs to sing at the funeral? I, I probably ought to learn about the rite itself. And so I went to the Catholic bookstore and I bought a copy of the rite of Christian burial. Even though I'm going to use very little of what's in this book, it would be good for me to know as the music director and to study the rite. And one of the things that immediately struck me, and if, if you've ever read a liturgical book before, uh, there are instructions and there are usually introductions as to th- this is why we are going to do what we are about to do. And in the rite of Christian burial, one of the instructions is on the purpose of this rite. And it's twofold, to comfort those who mourn and to pray for those who are deceased. And I think in our culture, we focus a lot on that first one to the detriment of the second or the exclusion of the second. But that second one is is not a small task. That's probably the biggest task of all is to pray for the repose of the soul of the deceased. That's right. Yeah. And I think I think you're right to point out um, that people are seeking comfort and they should. And the church understands that. You know, the church is the great master of the human person. But that they're actually, I would say the primary purpose of the funeral liturgy is to pray for the deceased. And this is a big part of ancient Christian doctrine was the understanding that we are to spend our eternity with God in heaven. That's his purpose for us. I tell people all the time, God wants to make you a saint, uh, and he will accomplish that purpose. All we have to do is cooperate with him. However, we know from the scriptures that the only one who can enter into that life of blessed eternity is the one, as the psalmist says, whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure. He's the one who climbed the mountain of the Lord and we are not of clean hands and pure heart so frequently. We have stains to, to be purified of. We have attachments to the things of this earth. And so we need to be purified of them. That's the whole basis of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And we would presume that for most people, uh, we hope, we have great confidence that God is powerful to bring them to heaven but that for most people, they're going to require some of this purgation before they get there. That's the purpose of the funeral liturgy is to pray for them who can no longer pray for themselves. And if you need some demonstration of that fact, um, they're still alive. They have a soul. Their souls are immortal. They're not in oblivion, but they can't do much for themselves anymore. Think of all the different things you do. How much of it could you do without your body? 
almost nothing. Almost nothing. Even our prayer we do by kneeling or by folding our hands or by using our lips or by directing our eyes to a crucifix or any of these things. We walk around the church for the stations of the cross. So many of the things that we even our spiritual life is done with the body. And these people, these poor souls in purgatory, don't even have a body to do any of those activities with. So they need our assistance in order to help them. We in the body of Christ can help each other. And just as we can pray for and assist each other on earth, we don't lose that communion when someone goes to purgatory. And that's the purpose of the funeral liturgy is to deliberately and very intentionally offer our prayers and our sacrifices for them as they're in that relatively helpless state. This is a good time to reiterate something that we say quite a bit, uh, whether it's on this podcast, whether it's one of our radio programs on Covenant Network. Uh, if you are not in a state of grace when you die, when you, your body becomes lifeless on this earth, you will not go to heaven. That's the teaching of the church. We have that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and there's the great chasm in between, and our Lord is very clear about the fate of the rich man, and he even says, well, you know, can't you go to my relatives and friends and, and warn them? And it's like, listen, they've had the prophets. They've, they've been warned, and, and so I just want to say, when we talk about things like the sacrament of confession— but even with the anointing of the sick, isn't that one of the things that will accompany that anointing is an opportunity for sacramental confession? I guess the question, though, Father, is this. If someone dies outside of a state of grace, are all of our prayers really for naught if we're having this funeral mass? Right. Um, there's a certain un or lack of knowledge on our part. Of course, we're not the ones who judge souls, and there are famous stories um, about souls who appeared to be among the reprobate, among the lost, who were actually given uh, the grace of contrition and of conversion at that last moment. Famous one with John Vianney. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Um, John Vianney was was asked by a distraught wife of a man who had uh, committed suicide, and she had been praying for this man who was away from the church for many years, and he then committed suicide, and she was distraught for him, and she went to Vianney, and he was given special knowledge at that moment um, to know that between the time he did the act that caused his death and his actual death, uh, he had an act of contrition and was among the saved. Now, he's going to spend a long time in purgatory, but he is among the saved. So my point is that we don't know and we should not try to investigate that. And for our part, um, we have hope that God is very merciful, more merciful than you or I can ever understand, and that he wants us to be saved. And he sent his son into this world in order to accomplish that, and his son went to death in order to accomplish it. I mean, there's, there's no limit to God's mercy. The only limit is our own refusal to accept it. As you say that, I, I can't help but think that if, if, if that were me, if I, if I was dead, you know, my body was dead, my soul's still very alive, my immortal soul, um, I would want the benefit of the doubt, you know, if, if everyone's saying, well, you know, we, we, he may not actually be among the saved, so maybe maybe we don't need to go through with this. It's like, could you give me the benefit of the doubt, please, because you might not know, so. Right, exactly, exactly. And so our prayers are good. First of all, no prayer is ever wasted, especially if we have, at least in the back of our minds, 
yet not my will, but thine be done, O Lord, as Jesus himself finished his prayer. Um, God, I entrust everything to you. I am here to cooperate with your will on earth, and that includes praying for the living and the dead. So we should pray for them. We, as you say, um, give them the benefit of the doubt. I've had a couple funerals where it was not obvious, even from the family's own, um, <laughs> often sometimes biased opinion of their beloved, uh, the, the deceased. Um, it was not obvious that this person was, to our eyes, uh, in the state of grace, practicing the Christian life, uh, seeking to serve God. My job there is to offer the funeral mass. In fact, the church um, forbids the funeral mass, the funeral liturgies, to be celebrated publicly for someone who is a notorious sinner, right? So, for example, if some, you know, head of a gang died as a Catholic, but clearly, you know, everyone knows he's the head of the gang, right? And he's committed all these crimes. He's responsible for these things. And there was no obvious sign of contrition before he died. We cannot bury him publicly. Of course, we can and should still pray for him privately, but we're not going to have a public funeral mass for him. Um, but that's only for someone. That is only in the extreme case of someone whose sins are grievous and public, and there is no public sign of contrition before they die. For everyone else, the church has us say funeral masses. And so my job as priest in that moment is to beg God for mercy for this person. Going back to that other component, though, the, the comforting those who mourn, I love how the rite itself does this because I, I, I've often thought of that. Well, how am I going to be of any comfort to this grieving family when they come in to meet with Father to pick out the readings and uh, to pick out hymns for the funeral mass? I mean, what can I say in that 10-minute meeting? Probably not much of anything. And yet when you go through the options for the Mass and you look at the Old Testament readings and you look at the epistle and you look at the gospel readings, just right there in the scriptures are so many lessons for us about the merciful saving power of God to say, you know, if God did this for those we read about in the scriptures— Surely he would offer that to us. And then taking that even a step further, the prayers of the Mass, the, the collect, uh, the farewell, the commendation, all of these things that are laid out in the rite. And I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah, it's not on me, Adam Wright, the, the guy sitting at the organ bench, to comfort anyone. The church is beautifully offering prayers and scriptures of comfort right there in the rite. That's right. Yeah, one of my favorite elements of those prayers is the preface for Masses for the Dead, in which the church calls to mind. And in fact, remember, at the preface, we're talking to God. We're not talking to the people. Um, we're talking to God. And the way the church often talks to God is to, as it were, remind him of certain qualities of himself. Um, God, of course, doesn't need reminding, but we're calling to mind in order to call upon that particular aspect, uh, to call it into motion, as it were. And the preface in which we're talking to God, we say, for your faithful, O Lord, life is changed, not ended. And when this earthly dwelling turns to dust, an eternal dwelling is made ready for them in heaven. That is the kernel of the Christian faith. I mean, the whole point of the Christian life is eternal life. That's what Christ came to give us. And at that moment, we're calling upon the fact that God made the promise. And we know that for God's faithful, life is not ended. It's only changed. And it's hard for us. It's hard for us on earth, and we can acknowledge that, um, and we can offer the comfort of kind of reinforcing people's faith and hope in that moment. I think the, the primary virtue to be exercised in all of these things is the virtue of hope, that trust in God's promises. 
a few practical questions I'd like to ask, just because they're, they're ones that we probably don't think of as members of the lay faithful until we're in a very urgent moment. So you mentioned earlier anointing of the sick and last rites, and I've seen it where uh, Father gets called sometimes. There are emergencies, and, and you get called in the middle of the night. There is no warning. It, it could be a car accident. It could be some other event. And uh, so many of our priests, you graciously go to do that anointing and, if necessary, offer last rites. But what if I'm sick or what if you know I end up – I'm having surgery, and while the prognosis is mostly good, there's still a high risk – uh, something like that. When is the appropriate time to call the rectory and say, could Father come anoint me to maybe spare you that trip in the middle of the night uh, if, if there was a, a better time that we could have called? That's right. I love talking about the sacrament of anointing because people don't know much about it. They kind of know that it exists and that they're supposed to call, but maybe not right, right now. There's a lot of confusion about that. So, yes, anointing is for the strengthening of the soul, it's primarily a spiritual rather than a physical healing that we're aiming at. However, we also know that spiritual healing can bring about physical healing, and I've actually seen that happen. Um, and there are plenty of priests who have had experiences of that. But the purpose is for spiritual healing, and it should be given. It's, it's given at the time when the body is under some kind of ailment, which could even be psychological if it were serious, um, that would be the kind of thing that would be dangerous of death, even if we don't expect death to be imminent. So, for example, someone has a, a malignity that they're going to have surgery to remove, some kind of cancer. Now, they expect that this surgery is going to go well and um, that they'll be fine. They still have a condition that involves the danger of death. So that would be a good time to call the priest. A condition or an injury uh, that doesn't really involve the danger of death. I would say, for example, 12-year-old kid playing soccer breaks his leg, right? Probably not danger of death in that case. It could be, and if it is, then definitely call for anointing. Um, but in that case, there's not really a danger of death. That probably isn't anointing. On the other hand, an 80-year-old woman who breaks her leg at home, that could be. That's you know that's the kind of injury or frailty that, that could be involve the danger of death. That would be an, a, a good occasion. So there is some kind of grayness. There's a little bit of uh, prudence and discretion that's involved here. And if it's close, we're going to anoint somebody. We're not going to say, ah, I don't think it's bad enough. Call us in three days if it gets worse, right? Um, so go ahead and call us. And the prayers of the anointing of the sick actually ask God to restore this person to his former duties, which is really a beautiful part of that. Um, so the intention of the church is that this would bring about a restoration. Now, we also know that the anointing is given to people who we do not expect to recover, whether it's through a disease that is terminal or through just the frailty of old age. They're not getting better from this. This is, this is their decline. And we still say those prayers, but the intention there is changed to the restoration that will come in the resurrection, right? God will give us our bodies back. He will restore us to full health and restore us to the communion of the church among the living. It just might not be here on earth. Um, so those prayers still are effective there. One last thing I'd like to say about anointing is that um, it endures. The effect of the sacrament endures as long as the ailment endures. So if you have a cancer and you get anointed at the beginning of your treatment of the cancer, that anointing lasts as long as the cancer lasts. Now, if you get better and then you get some other disease later on, 
go get anointed again. But you don't need kind of top-ups on anointing, as it were. You know, it's been three months. Okay, well, we anointed you, and it's still working. Um, Call upon the grace of that anointing. About two years ago, I was going in to have my two of my wisdom teeth removed. And I called my pastor, and I said, Father, I'm not sure if this is a situation that calls for anointing. And he said, well, usually wisdom teeth, they would not. And I said, yeah, but in this case, there's an underlying condition. And the fact that I'll be under general anesthesia is actually the concern. The concern is not the teeth at all. It's, it's the fact that I'm going to be put under general anesthesia. And he said, well, if that's a concern, absolutely. Why don't you come to mass on this day? And then after mass, I'll anoint you. Does that work for your schedule? And, and I share that to say, if nothing else, if you're unsure, call. Call the rectory and, and ask to speak with Father and ask, and he'll tell you, yes. And, and as Father Schumacher just shared with us, when in doubt, we'll anoint. But have that peace of mind. Don't don't be wondering, well, should I have called later when it's too late? And then all of a sudden it becomes an incredibly urgent situation. And just go ahead and ask now. Uh, the other beautiful thing was that by doing that, Father said, you know, we'll do the anointing after Mass. And he also asked, do you need to make confession or have you had the opportunity to make a good confession? I said, no, I went over the weekend. So, uh, you know, as best as I know, I, I'm good. Um, but thank you for asking. And that, that was another wonderful thing. Now, you mentioned there's a difference, though, between anointing of the sick and last rites. And that's really we're, we're shifting the focus from healing to preparation for the death of the body. So um, give us a little summary of what happens in last rites. Right. Sometimes when the end comes quickly and there wasn't anointing before, the the last rites begins with anointing. Um, That's the first thing that ought to be done. Usually we would hope that it's already done, as I said, but sometimes it's not. Or sometimes something comes up very suddenly that wasn't expected at all. And, um, you know, like a car accident, like you mentioned before. So Anointing is what is done first. The anointing of the sick has the power to forgive sins for one who doesn't have the opportunity to make a sacramental confession. That's why it's so important to have the the anointing of the sick. Um, But given that that is done, um, the last rites, properly speaking, involve um, what's called the apostolic pardon, um, where the priest grants a plenary indulgence at the moment of death. That plenary indulgence is given, I should say this, the church wants to be very generous with that grant of that indulgence. Um, she grants that indulgence to every one of her members who is in the habit of praying. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty broad. And she says, even if a priest is not there to say the words. So don't be afraid. Um, have the intention of wanting to receive that indulgence when your death comes and you will receive it. Uh, thanks be to God for that, and thanks be to God for the, the generosity of his church in granting that indulgence. Now, of course, that indulgence isn't magic. It still requires our cooperation. So um, we do need to be sorry for our sins and to ask God to cleanse us entirely of our sins. And that's kind of the, the our part in doing that. But we should have confidence that he really is going to do that. So the priest comes and he pronounces those words of the indulgence, right, by the Authority granted to me by the apostolic see, I grant you a plenary indulgence and remission of all sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's beautiful words, right? By the power that was given to Peter, his apostle, right? The power of the keys. So that's just a little prayer. And then there's this long set of prayers. Um, When I pray them, they usually take about half an hour. And the priest is just praying along with the family, all those gathered there um, to 
prepare this soul and to ask God for mercy and for strength. Um, these prayers begin with a litany of the saints, but it's a litany that is unique in the, as far as I know, in the Christian prayer, because every response to the litany is pray for him, pray for him, right? Holy Mary, pray for him. St. Joseph, pray for him. Over and over, we're, we're invoking all these saints to pray for this person. Our, our focus is entirely on the salvation of the one who is at the moment of death, right? As we pray to Our Lady every time in the Hail Mary, pray for us now and for us at the hour of our death. And then um, after that is the most beautiful prayer. Um, you probably have heard this, and this maybe have given rise to some superstitions among Christians down through the ages, right? The priest begins the next long series of prayers with the words, Proficiscere anima Christiana, go forth, O Christian soul, from this world. And I'm sure it happened on some random and rare occasions that the person actually died at that moment, kind of, as it were, at obedience to the word of the priest. Go forth from this world, and they go. And so you can imagine that maybe people who were afraid of dying would have been afraid to call the priest and ask him to say those words. Um, of course, that's, you know, we don't have some magic power to dismiss the soul. Um, but we do have the power in God's name to comfort him that he is not in danger if he will put his trust in God. So the prayer goes on, go forth, O Christian soul, from this world in the name of God, the Father Almighty who created you, in the name of God, the Son who died for you in the name of the Holy Spirit who has poured forth upon you in the name of all the saints and angels, right? Beautiful prayer. We're entrusting you to your creator, your redeemer, your sanctifier, um, and all of your brethren in, who are already in heaven. Um, and then, as I say, it goes on for about half an hour of different prayers uh, that are very beautiful. You mentioned earlier when talking about the apostolic pardon that one of the prayers is very similar to part of the funeral mass, uh, what I would refer to as in paradisum, the, the chant that is sung uh, for those who are not Latin scholars, may angels guide you and lead you into paradise. And as you're saying all of this about the apostolic pardon, this is perhaps a very silly image to uh, conjure in my head. But I'm thinking about when my children were very little and we would take them to preschool and they wouldn't want to separate from mom and dad. And what does the teacher do? The teacher comes out and says to the child, no, no, it's okay. Here, take my hand. I'm going to come with you. We're going to go in together. And, the, and leads the child into the school. And then what happens? Later in the day, you oh, mom and dad, that was the greatest thing ever. And I can only imagine that if we have that fear, that trepidation of dying, you know, that if it's anything like that, that the saints, the angels, the Blessed Mother come and take us by the hand to lead us to Jesus, you know, and on, on the flip side of things, it, after the, the final judgment, uh, if we're among the elect in heaven, we're going to be looking at each other saying, wow, this is really great. This is nowhere near as bad as what I thought it was going to be. In fact, this is quite the opposite. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It's, I, I do love the in paradisum. I've got it clipped out and taped into my copy of that uh, the funeral liturgy book that you were mentioning earlier, The Rite of Christian Burial, because I sing that at the end of every funeral mass. Um Beautiful, beautiful little prayer. May the angels lead you into paradise. <laughs> may, uh, may the holy martyrs receive you at your coming. Oh, just beautiful. Yeah. So we, we've talked a little bit about what happens in the rite of Christian burial, that there is the, the wake service, as we call it, or the, uh, the vigil. And there's, there are prayers for the repose of the soul of the deceased. 
And also throughout the funeral liturgy, there are those prayers for the repose of the soul of the deceased as well as commendation. When we get to the grave site, there are prayers that are prayed uh, before the body is placed into the ground. Um, and again, th- that dual purpose of comforting those who mourn, but it's most especially praying for the repose of the soul of the deceased. And for you and I, and likely for many of our listeners, you know, th- this is second nature. This is what you do when your loved one dies. Uh, however, sadly, th- the later we went into my career in music ministry, the more frequently we were asked to have meetings with parishioners. Uh, Father, Adam, I'd like to sit down with you before I die and plan out my funeral mass. My, my kids, they left the church. They don't go, and I just want to make sure that everything's taken care of. That's, that's somewhat of a new concern in the life of the church, but it's a very real one and one I'd like to talk about today because, um, you know, as I said earlier, I, I hope— that when I die, my friends and, and loved ones will pray for me. So um, w- what has your experience been with this? And, and, and really what I'd like to get to the heart of is what can we do now? You know, whether it's for our children uh, who may have left to convey our wishes to them so that they're not guessing, uh, or if we're reasonably certain that, you know, there's not going to be anyone to make sure I have these arrangements What's appropriate to, to speak with Father about now? Right. Um, we priests certainly want the faithful of the church to have the funeral liturgy of the church, the, the prayers of the church at that moment. So certainly I would say go and express your intention to the priest because we don't know unless you tell us. I mean, we expect that anyone who's faithful is going to want these things, but um, we, we can't kind of reach into your life and presume that. Um, and if, especially if you are worried, if there's anxiety that perhaps it won't be done except by someone from outside your family, um, certainly I think a priest would be willing to make sure that that happens. So, um, tell him your concerns and, and, um, maybe even write it into your will that for the purpose of accomplishing the burial, um, that part of the, the execution is left to the priest, you know, my parish priest. And, of course, you're going to have to let him know about that ahead of time as well. Um, I was recently at a church, and there were a group of people who recognized the need for some kind of organization with regard to funeral planning. And they do kind of setup of the church and the church hall for a luncheon afterward and these kind of things. And also to help the family who may not know what to do at that moment. Um, But I wonder if a group like that could be in place to help um, this kind of category of people who aren't confident that they will get a funeral liturgy unless the church herself kind of reaches in and provides it. So yeah, make your make your uh, intention known. Tell about any anxieties or concerns that you have so that we can be more solicitous in those cases. And say it also to your children that this is what you intend to have accomplished. And even if they don't believe or practice, um, you do. And this is for you. It's not for them strictly. So, yeah, I think that's a, a beginning anyway of an answer there. And, and maybe by having that somewhat planned out or at least having your, your desires communicated very clearly, um, you know, if you recognize my children, they're not going to want to do this. 
but to say, this is my desire, and I'm not going to put this all on you. In fact, uh, so-and-so from the parish, my good friend that, that I sit with at 8 o'clock Mass every Sunday morning, She's ready. I've, I've already spoken with her. She'll handle all of the arrangements with the church, and you don't have to worry about any of it, maybe in an extreme case, but to have that planned out in advance. Um, recently, I had someone give me a workbook, and they said, have you given this to your parents yet? I said, I've never seen this workbook, and I started thumbing through it, and it was it was wonderful. It was asking all of these questions that you know, I'm going to be left to somewhat guess. I know my parents are Catholic. I know they would like to have a funeral mass. They would like to receive the rite of Christian burial. But even within that, there are still a lot of, of questions about what cemetery and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of details. And I called my dad up and I said, Dad, this is going to sound a little morbid, but I've got this workbook. I've got two of them, actually, and I'd like to drop them off. And at some point, could you and Mom just go through them and fill them out and give them back to me, and I'm just going to put them in the safe deposit box until we need them. And, you know, if you want me to look at it in advance, if not, it'll just stay in the envelope until we need it. And I thought, wow, what a great tool that is. And there are no shortage of these out there. There are some great Catholic organizations that put these out there. You could probably search online and find one right now. Uh, but that's another another very helpful tool for us. Right. And just like you'd make sure that you had your life insurance policy up to date and you had your will up to date and you had made clear different expectations and, and provisions for different temporal elements, um, why not also? There's no reason you can't plan your funeral liturgy right now. In fact, we priests in the Archdiocese of St. Louis are required to have that all, at least the, the basic arrangements um, on file at the diocese because we don't have children to tell the priest what to do when we pass from this world. And you, um, you might not have surviving siblings, or you might not have ever had siblings. You might have been an only child. Right. Father, one of the other things that we should talk about, and again with the efficacy of prayer, and this is always one of those weird things for me in conversation, because sometimes I have a difficult time explaining this. It's very common when someone passes for fellow parishioners, friends, loved ones to go to the parish office and say, I'd like to have a mass said for so-and-so. Who passed away. And the parish secretary gets out this wonderful calendar that every parish has for the mass intentions and says, well, there, these dates are available. Would, would you like any of these dates? And sometimes you'll see a mass offered for a person on the anniversary of their death. And th that question is, well, does that do any good? Uh, th they've been dead for quite some time. I think you answered that earlier by saying, well, you know, we hope that they're in heaven. They may be in purgatory. And if they're in purgatory, I am assured they would want our prayers. So this is a good thing. Um, how is that different than a funeral mass, having, having these mass intentions following a person's death for the repose of their soul? Right. Different customs have grown up in the history of the church about these kind of things. First of all, we can say that the relation between earthly time and the time of the world to come is a little bit unclear. Um, we can always pray here, no matter what time we're in for those who have gone before us, and they're all kind of applied, if you want to think of it, you know, backdated, as it were, to whenever they were needed in the past, if you want to think of it that way, it may be that purgatory is basically instantaneous. It's just different grades of hardship and suffering that is gone through, but that, you know, there isn't really uh, a span of time in purgatory. We just don't know that for certain. 
Um, so any prayers offered for the dead after they're, they're passing from this world are effective for them. We can, we can have faith in that. For example, when I'm at Mass, you know, at, at the canon of the Mass, there's those two prayers, one for the living, you know, for, for your servants, right? and the priest pauses, and we pray for whoever we want to pray for at that moment. And then later on, there's for your servants who have passed before us, and we pray for the dead. Uh, I've got a little list of, of the people that have been dear to me that I, that I keep at that time, and especially also for the one for whom the Mass is offered if, they're, if they are deceased. So um, those Masses are this, for the same purpose as the funeral Mass, which is for the, for the salvation, the final um, sanctification of this person so that they can enter heaven. And as I say, it can be applied at any time. It's all, it all works back to the time whenever it was needed in purgatory. Um, there were different customs. Um, the church actually had masses to be said on the third day, on the seventh day, on the 30th day, and on the one-year anniversary of the death or of the receiving of the news of death, right? You can imagine um, some religious order that received news that one of their brethren had died in another monastery, right? Okay, well, we'll just start counting from that day. Um, and that, you know, is certainly uh, reasonable to apply in the case of uh, our loved ones as well. Another custom that was done was what was called the Gregorian Masses, um, which was a set of 30 Masses said on consecutive days, um, which can be difficult. Um, usually that would be done by contacting a monastery um, that has, you know, a handful or many priests um, and say, I'd like Mass to be said for this person um, for 30 days in a row. Um, that's what's called the Gregorian Masses. So there were different customs. But in any case, any of those Masses offered are for the same purpose as the funeral mass, which is that God would quickly bring this soul into heaven. I would imagine because God exists outside of time and space that, you know, if down the road after my death, someone has a mass said for me at the moment of my death, God is aware that that mass is going to be said in the future and those prayers, you know, will be effective. That's right. Yeah. 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 In fact, there are sometimes funny things that show up online um, a priest will say, oh, I had a funny mass intention this morning and post a little picture of the mass intentions in his parish bulletin. And, you know, this morning I had mass for Elvis Presley or, you know, this morning I had <laughs> someone just threw in a mass intention for someone from the past, wow. um, which indicates, you know, it's a little bit silly in one sense, but it also indicates a, a deep Catholic understanding of, sure, he needs prayers too, right? Yeah. Um, why not? I'll have a mass said for him. I, I often think about that uh, that saying of Yogi Berra, if you don't go to your friend's funerals, they won't come to yours. And we all laugh at that because well, how can they come to mine? They're dead. Except, you know, if we have that hope that they're in heaven, uh, yeah, well, they, they could very well be offering up prayers for us from among the, the elect at, at the moment of our death. So I am going to go to their funerals and pray for them. That's right. And actually, I said earlier, and this is relatively um, – consistent Catholic doctrine that the souls in purgatory can't do anything for themselves. They can't merit, in other words. Right. However, there is a long tradition of souls in purgatory being able to do something for others. Um, and certainly, once they reach heaven, then they certainly can do things for others. Um, I think it was Catherine of Genoa, oh, one of the saints, Catherine of Genoa. I could be wrong on which one it was, but I think it was Catherine of Genoa who frequently went to, like her chosen, I need someone's prayers Right? She didn't go to St. Stephen or St. Peter or any of the saints that you and I might go to. She went to the souls in purgatory and said, I will do whatever penances you want me to do. Right? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer my penances for you, which you need. I need you who are beloved of God and who can no longer commit sin 
to pray for me for this particular intention. And she received so many graces through this, through the prayers of the souls in purgatory, which is really interesting. I've heard it said by a, a priest friend of mine who's very knowledgeable, whose uh, guidance I, I very much trust, that uh, the souls in purgatory can't pray for you unless you pray for them first. And it's a pretty simple thing for us to do, to offer our prayers for the souls in purgatory. Uh, I often think of a, a good priest friend of mine as well. We, we jokingly had what we referred to as the confraternity of the minor annoyance, you know, where you get that paper cut and you say, oh, that stings. Well, I'm going to offer that for a soul in purgatory who's on the cusp. They're right. They're, they're one they paper need. cut away from the beatific vision. And it's, but it's actually, as silly as it sounds, it's a good reminder for us that even those simple sufferings we go through in life, we can apply to the souls in purgatory. Father, this has been incredibly insightful. And, and I think to recap some of the lessons, um, if, if you're experiencing an illness or undergoing a surgery or medical procedure that involves the risk of death, certainly don't wait. Go ahead and call the parish priest and ask for the anointing of the sick and ask for that guidance. Um, make the, you know I, I would think the one thing to make known to your friends and family is at the moment of my death, I probably won't be able to call Father and say, can you come give the apostolic pardon and the last rites, but have someone in your family or, or a loved one or a friend who will know to call when we're getting close to that moment and then make your wishes known about your funeral mass and your burial and all of that. Um, and make sure you have someone who will see that that's followed through on and that will take care of those spiritual needs for you because, you know, we, we can all think that's what you've wanted, but it's a lot easier to accomplish, as Father said, if you make it very clear, this is what I want upon my death. I want my burial to be according to what the church prescribes because I want to be an obedient son or daughter of the church. And quite frankly, as I said, I would like the graces and uh, prayers available to me, especially if I have a lot of time to spend in purgatory. Before we wrap up, I did think of one final thing that we, we haven't talked about, and that is this idea of celebrating the life and Sometimes we, we conflate that with the funeral, that you know we, we have multiple people get up and speak and, and give remembrances. And while the church does make an allowance for a remembrance of some sorts, it's, it's not really what we think of when we're going to have 18 eulogies talking about how great Adam was and how wonderful he was. But that's not to say you can't do that, that there's just a more appropriate time. Um, and, and for instance, I, I've, I've told my wife, if I precede you in death— I expect you bury me according to the rites of the church and then rent a church hall, a, a night's hall or somewhere and have the Jameson flowing and tell all the stories and share all the laughter you can about my life. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Yes. Um, there's a good Catholic sense in that. Um, we are not morbid. We're not dour. Um, we do uh, take the reality of death seriously. And at the moment of the the church's solemn liturgical rites, we should be solemn. Um, but that doesn't mean, of course, that we are denying or neglecting the reality that we do want to remember this person um, and remember our happiness with them and look forward to happiness to come in the future. I agree with you. I think uh, the occasion or the, the circumstance is, is what is often uh, lacking. Um, what should be done is that the mass should be the mass and the burial should be the burial. And the party <laughs> should be the party. Um, I've also found that there's a, there's a desire to kind of inject a little bit of levity into something that is uh, can be very heavy. 
um, especially if the death was not expected or was early or um, untoward in any other way. And that's an appropriate human desire, and the church does not reject that. However, it's not appropriate to do at Mass. Uh, the Mass should be solemn and formal and according to the right of the church, um, and injecting levity is a bit artificial at that moment. Um, however, at the lunch and afterward, sure, yeah. As you say, let's, let's, let's have some beers and let's, uh, you know, uh, laugh about, you know, and, and I often will even say, you know, when I'm meeting with the family, you could probably tell me the foibles of this person. And they almost always chuckle at that. They laugh at that, right? Yeah, they're like, yeah, yeah, we can. <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm going to bring up during the funeral mass. But sure, afterward, why not? Let's bring those things up. Let's bring up the good things. Let's bring up the silly things. Um, they don't really belong at mass, but they do certainly belong in our task of um, laying this person to rest. I think of a relative of mine who, uh, you know, I had the good fortune of meeting with this relative before they died and very clearly communicated, I'd, I'd like you to do the music for my funeral mass and I would like it to be very specifically this. And then uh, at the wake, another family member said, well, you know, dad really wanted this. And it was something that was, there, there was no way it was going to be sung in the church. And uh, so he said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, how about at the wake you know, during the time of visitation, not during the time of prayer, but during the time of visitation, certainly we could have a speaker and you could you could play whatever songs you want. Um, or after the mass or after the burial, you know, after the prayer is concluded, we could certainly play this song over a speaker and that would be wholly appropriate. That's what we did. It worked out it was very beautifully, actually. Yeah, there's a great analogy of that even in, in one of the interesting particular instructions of the church, which is that at the Mass, there is to be a, a pall placed upon the casket, which is a sign of our death with Christ through baptism in hope of resurrection with Christ uh, in the world to come. And so that is a liturgical vestment, as it were. But you're all familiar, of course, with the draping of a, an American flag on the, uh, the coffin of a soldier um, or of a firefighter or, you know, someone like this. Um, the church says that she doesn't prohibit that. She just says it can't be during Mass. So if, you know, if you've seen one of these solemn funerals for a politician or a soldier or anything like this, they bring, they carry the casket in with the flag over the casket, and at the door of the church, they fold up the flag. We have the Mass, the funeral Mass. They process the casket back out, and they put the flag back on. And I think that kind of indicates this conjoining but separating of the kind of secular elements and the more familiar and worldly elements with the sacred and solemn liturgical elements. We're not saying no. We're just saying not at this moment, but certainly within the context of these few days or whatever that time frame may be. Father, this has been a, a very insightful conversation and one I'm glad to have had the opportunity to have with you here for our listeners um, it's, it's not something we like to think about, but it's something we should think about in this month of November when this podcast is airing is a very good time of year to, as they say, memento mori, remember that we are mortal, that we will die. Uh, so thank you for sharing your time with us. Could I ask you to close our podcast with a prayer? Let's pray, especially for the souls in purgatory. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord. And let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. Amen. May their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. 
May Almighty God bless all of you listening in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Deeper Podcast. We love to bring you these long conversations once a month here. If there's a topic you would like us to cover, well, by all means, drop us a line here at the station, and we would be happy to consider that. In the meantime, please feel free to share this episode, click like or subscribe, and have a great month until we meet again here on this podcast.